And we are Two Peaks in a Pod. <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining us. This is our very first podcast episode. And so we're going to get started. And I am actually going to be surprising Dr. K with the format for this podcast and, and everything. This is going to be a surprise to her. So I figured maybe we could start off with just a little chit chat. How's your week been going? It's been going great. Okay. We've had a couple pregnancies. Yay! So that's exciting. Okay, good. And lots of satisfied fertility patients. So yes, good. yes. Okay, well, I've had a good week because I got my cabinets installed in my office. They look really cute, and we've gotten made a lot of progress with the building. One of my favorite things this week is our collection room. We got our TV set up in there for the guys. Um, we definitely want to make sure that you know, a lot of times we're focusing on our female patients, but we definitely want to incorporate the guys too and make sure that they feel really comfortable whenever they come to see us. And so we've got all of that set up and ready to go. I think it's good. Yeah, it's nice. They have their own kind of part of the building right now. So they exactly. get to a lot of privacy and get to yes. do their things. So. Yes, and those are things we really thought a lot about. We um, didn't want the collection room to be near any other rooms. We wanted people to be able to just have the time and the privacy to do what they need to do to be able to give us a semen analysis or a specimen for an IUI. So these are the type of things that we think about, and I think it turned out great. Yeah, awesome. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so the first topic I wanted to start off when I was thinking about topics is kind of just the very beginning. So one of the first things I talk to my patients about when I see them for the first time is genetic carrier screening. So I was just curious, have you had genetic carrier screening done? I have, actually. Okay. Yeah, so my husband and I, I think... I've shared with a lot of you know friends and even my own patients that my husband and I have definitely gone through fertility testing and treatment ourselves. And we did, prior to even doing the IVF process many years ago, we did genetic carrier screening. And now I'm like trying to remember, but I'm fairly certain just I did it. Mm -hmm. And I believe I didn't carry anything. Oh! Yes, and it's so interesting now because yeah. I think you and I both feel similarly, yeah. often when we test our patients and we do the screening testing, it turns out that the patient tends to be positive for something, meaning the female patient that we're seeing initially first, they tend to be positive for something, and then we have to test the male partner to see if there's any overlap, and so it's kind of nice if you just have to do one and the female is negative for everything, but yeah. maybe we should back up and talk a little bit about what carrier screening is. Absolutely, yes, yes. So, you know, um, I think that one of the important things to say, too, is that whenever anybody is trying to get pregnant, not just patients who've had infertility, this should be a test that you're getting offered from your OBGYN or whoever's giving you advice about getting pregnant. And this is an optional test, but it is a test to see, do you carry anything in your genetics that you can pass on to a child that would cause a major medical problem like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy or really hundreds of other different conditions? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's helpful too. I mean, obviously we see patients sometimes firsthand, but often we'll see patients who have already engaged in care with an OBGYN. And I think it's, you know, just important to make sure that at some level of care, it's always offered to all patients, like you said, who are thinking about having a baby. Because I always tell my patients, we're in the unique situation as fertility doctors that we're seeing people before they make a baby. This is the most important time that we test for these recessive conditions. And I can tell you just from personal experiences that these diseases just pop up out of nowhere. I mean, that is the nature. These are recessive conditions, meaning they come from two hidden genes, one from mom, one from dad. And they tend to not have any strong family history. You have no idea that you carry these genes. And then they just pop up out of nowhere and they're 
devastating conditions. I mean, truly, I'm sure everyone probably knows someone that has cystic fibrosis. It's mm-hmm. really common in the carrier population, and it's a challenge. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a really important test that we offer and that we do. And mm-hmm. I, of course, encourage all of my patients to proceed with it. But like Dr. Reed said, it's optional, mm-hmm. and we support all of our patients in whatever decision they make about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the hard parts is you and I have both seen patients that did never have the test done. That maybe they got pregnant, they had a child that was affected with one of these conditions, and they always say, gosh, if I could just go back and have tested beforehand, that's what I would want to do. Um, but the advantage of knowing if you and your partner carry a condition is with fertility treatments these days, even if you don't have infertility, you can do IVF, and then you can do testing on the embryos to make sure that you transfer um, or get pregnant with an embryo that is unaffected with the condition that you guys have tested positive for. So that is the big advantage there. Yeah, and I do think it's a good point to be made. I mean, certainly we have patients that will test and they both come back that they carry the same gene and then we do proceed with IVF. But even those of you out there that may be listening and you may be thinking, I never want to do IVF. I know IVF is just not in the cards for me. I still think this is important testing to do because it's important to think ahead and plan ahead. And I think it's important information to know if you and your partner both carry the same recessive condition. I think it's such a good point. Um, so I agree. I definitely see people, same thing. They know they would never do IVF. They would never plan on that. But even just knowing that your child has, for example, a 25% chance of having spinal muscular atrophy might be enough to prompt you to say, look, when I deliver my baby, I'm going to deliver at a hospital that has the team that is experienced with this condition so that my baby's going to have the best chances of really thriving and doing as well as possible with whatever the condition is. So I think that's a really good point too. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about just deciding to do genetic carrier screening and the company we're using, we're not going to necessarily use the name or anything, but one of the things that I like is that they will actually tell you ahead of time before you have the test done does your insurance cover the test for you and if it doesn't they tell you the self-pay price which is really nice so I'm sure you know for those of you out there the pricing can be different for wherever you go but just so people have a ballpark figure for ours it's about $250 if you end up having to pay out of pocket for the test and then the other thing I just want to talk about are the different ways of doing the test so for me the way we're doing it here at peak is new so at my last place that I was at we used to have patients do blood tests See, is that how it was at your prior yeah, place too? Yeah it was a surprise actually when yeah. we started doing it here and I think it's a yeah. pleasant surprise for a lot to patients. Yes. So um, our testing for genetic carrier screening is done through a simple saliva collection kit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fantastic. I think yes. both um, Dr. Reed and I both feel similarly about getting our blood drawn. Definitely not our favorite experience. No. So <laughs> anytime we can eliminate a blood draw for our patients, we certainly want to do so. Yes. Yes. So the fact that this is non-invasive, you can actually even do it at home. So we can actually send the kits to our patients for patients that may live far from our office or things like that. We can just have it sent to their home. They just uh, do the saliva kit. They just send it in the mail to the company. And it does take about two or three weeks to get the results back. Um, But then you get the list of, you know, um, all the possible conditions you you may or may not carry. Um, But I think let's kind of talk about, too, about what you were mentioning earlier about should you screen one partner at a time or two. So I think they call it tandem testing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I will say in the beginning, I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, we're mainly doing a lot of testing for the female partner. There's Mm -hmm. certainly things that we do for the male partner. Mm -hmm. 
but when I was first starting, I was like, okay, we'll just do female testing. And then I definitely got into many situations. Most of our patients are very engaged in care and they want to get moving with treatment as soon as possible. And it's tough, especially if you're moving forward with IVF to be waiting on testing to come back to start your cycle. So like she said, it takes about three weeks. So if you wait three weeks and it turns out female partner has something, then you of course have to test the male to see if you match up and carry that same gene. And so I will say it's unfortunate. And my nature is I'm very impatient. Yeah. I want answers <laughs> as soon as possible. Yes. And I think many of my patients feel that way. Yes, yes, yeah. So one of the options could be, hey, my partner and I are both gonna get tested at the same time. That way in three weeks, you both get your reports back and you can see, do you match up with any conditions? Another thing I like about the company we use is they have free genetic counseling. So you can call the company that you talk to a genetic counselor, they'll talk to you about the conditions that you guys are positive for and, and all of that. And I did just wanna to mention too, what about our um, like single mothers by choice or, or um, same sex couples that are gonna be using donor sperm? Do you wanna comment on how helpful that is for them too? Yeah, I think it's certainly still very important testing, you know, because you have to consider just where the genetics are coming from. So either way, if you're going to use donor sperm or either, I mean, really you're using donor sperm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for that person that's actually going to contribute the egg to consider testing as well. Yes, absolutely. I've just noticed that really when I look on any of the websites for donor sperm, all the donors these days have had this same testing done, which just makes it so helpful for you to be just be able to make sure you match up correctly with the donor and that you don't both carry the same thing. So um, I think that's been great as well. Um, okay, well, I think anything else you wanna add about genetic carrier screening? So. Oh, you know what I was going to add? You might be surprised. I've never had genetic carrier screening. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a little late for me now. I have three kids, yeah. and thank goodness everything is okay. But I yeah. was kind of thinking maybe we should do this for a podcast yeah. episode where I do the saliva yeah. kit, we send it off, we can open my results on the podcast and see, do I carry anything? Because I am curious, because that's the other thing, too. Let's say I have a patient who tested positive for a couple things, her partner was negative for everything. They don't need to worry for their own kids. But you know what I always tell them is, hey, let all your relatives know. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sister? Do you have a brother? You should let them know that you guys carry these things in your family and maybe they should have the testing too, along with their partners. The more information you have about your genetics, the better, right? Yeah, so. certainly, and your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you have it, then Absolutely. the chance that you. Yeah, great point, great point, yeah. Okay, so now we're gonna switch focus to our next segment, which is reality TV, oh, which I, I know you're not a big reality TV show fan, yeah. but I love reality TV. I watch all the shows, but one topic that comes up all the time in reality TV these days is fertility oh, and yes. egg freezing and all the rest of it. And I think it's important for you to know what your patients are watching out there. <laughs> I and, think I get tidbits and what yeah. I hear is always interesting. Yes, yes. There's a lot of correction that we have to do from people like yeah. Kylie Jenner. I don't know. Yes. Someone, someone yeah. recently got you know, yeah, egg yeah. freezing on all of these things. So. The Kardashians have yeah. done some egg freezing. You yes. know what's interesting about that too, and, and I figured we can talk about this on another one, is Chloe and Courtney both did egg freezing, but neither of them got any viable embryos when they tried to thaw their eggs and use That's them. Right. And I mean, I think it's just such a good point to show that even when they have the best resources and they have the money to go see whatever fertility doctor they need to, it's still no guarantee that the eggs are gonna work for you. Um, and so of course, I'm sad for them that that happened, but I also am glad that they're just open with their journey about that it's nice to, to other be people. Transparent. Yeah, yes. and I do think that that's important mm -hmm. for all women to know that it's certainly. 
definitely not a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I always kind of walk my patients through mm-hmm. that attrition from starting. Okay, yeah. this is the number of eggs that we were, you know, retrieved mm-hmm. on retrieval day. This is how many may be mature, and yeah. we freeze them. And yeah. then I say, okay, let's fast forward yeah. three years, ten yeah. years until right. you're ready to use your eggs. How is this really going to play out with this number? Mm-hmm. And then we revisit that after the retrieval, so they yes. understand because. I also think at that point it's important if people are you know fairly certain or maybe they need to use their eggs for mm-hmm. some reason. We have some people that have genetic conditions and yeah. they know they're going to be doing IVF later for mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. PGTM things like that. They know that they need to use their thawed eggs. Yeah. Well, do we need to do another cycle? Right. You know, do right. we have sufficient mm-hmm. eggs frozen at this point in time to yeah. really create enough embryos later? And Absolutely. there's no there's no magic number for mm-hmm. that, but I do think that you can get into safer numbers. Yes. Quantity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a clip to show you. Oh, okay. Okay, let me get this up here on my phone. Our producer is going to add this clip into the podcast for us later so you guys can all see the clip that I'm going to be adding in if you haven't seen it yourself. Okay, I think this is it. Let me turn it up. Ariana, what happened with your eggs? Ariana wants me to um, fertilize her eggs. I'm like, it helps the, the eggs live longer and, mm. and it's better for them. They're just frozen. They're not fertilized. No, thank okay. God. I don't okay. want that DNA mixed with mine. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so okay, first of all, who are these people? Okay, let me let me give you the backstory on it. Okay, so this is really about Tom Sandoval and Ariana, who are both on this reality show called Vanderpump Rules, oh, yes. okay. and they had a very long term relationship. She said she didn't ever want kids, but she did freeze her eggs just in case. Okay, and so they were exploring the idea of fertilizing her eggs with his sperm to make embryos. But the backstory is, during this time, he was cheating on her. And so they are now broken up, okay? But I wanted you to kind of comment on the on what Tom said, where he said, if you fertilize the eggs, they will live longer. And kind of say why that's definitely not true, but also I you can understand, yeah. like, where he would be confused about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. think I know where you're kind of trying to go. So this is actually a conversation I just had with a patient this week. Mm-hmm. And so she came to me, and, you know, you have a patient that maybe you're single, you're in a relationship, but you're not certain that that's the person that you want to do fertility preservation with, right? So you're considering, should I do egg freezing or should I fertilize my eggs and do embryo preservation, right? Mm -hmm. So what he's saying when he's like, oh, well, if you fertilize the eggs, they're going to live longer. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe he could be getting at the fact that when we do fertility preservation with egg freezing, we're just freezing those mature eggs, okay? And so later down the road, we do have to thaw them. We inseminate them. Not all of them inseminate, right? So not all of them are going to be fertilized after that. Not all of them are going to grow into embryos. So there's, you know, you start with a certain number, and then it's going to get much lower as you get to the embryo portion. So he may be kind of talking about the fact that if you go all the way through the process and freeze embryos ahead of time, I say it's sort of like showing your cards at the beginning of the game, right? So you know exactly what that reproductive potential somewhat will be later down the line if you do embryo preservation. So instead, let's say you do an egg retrieval, you get your eggs out, and then we inseminate them right then and there. We grow them to embryos. We know from your 10 eggs that we got two embryos and you have two embryos frozen embryos are perfectly happy being frozen in time i will say the thaw rate of embryos is slightly higher than eggs so this could also be something that he's hinting at so usually embryos do really well when you thaw and um 
thaw them for their next transfer. So we usually quote about a 99% chance that they'll survive the thaw. Eggs don't necessarily do as well. Remember, eggs are just a single cell. An embryo is a ball of many, many cells, so a little bit hardier. Eggs, when you freeze them, they certainly do just fine. When you go to thaw them, often you may lose a couple of eggs in the thawing process. So it depends on the protocol, it depends on the age of the eggs, but maybe you might get an 80, 85% success rate of thawing your eggs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so thank you for that detailed explanation. I think that breaks it down more as to why it's, I guess you wouldn't want anyone to feel confused after seeing his statement about about what that is. And here's what I would say, thank goodness they didn't go through with that, right? Because had they saw the eggs and add Tom's sperm, that is irreversible. They would have had embryos together. And since they're broken up, I'm assuming they would not have agreed to be able to use those embryos. So since Ariana kept her eggs frozen and did not fertilize them with Tom's sperm, they are just in in the freezer, wait, ready for whenever she might want to use them, whether she wants to use them now, five years from now, 10 years from now, they're gonna be available for whoever her future partner is that she would want to use them with. So. I can say a little plug to my co-fellow okay. and Nola Hurley. She actually mm-hmm. did do a study. I can't remember oh. what she named it. We're trying to think of clever names. I'll have yeah. to ask her. I think it was frozen in time or something oh. like that. But she looked at length of time frozen mm. for eggs mm-hmm. preserved. And, you know, we really haven't had eggs frozen for a really long time at mm-hmm. this point. Egg freezing mm-hmm. is sort of a newer process. Yeah. It's becoming much more popular. <clears throat> but basically the question is, if I have my eggs frozen for a longer period of time, mm-hmm. are they going to have less potential later mm-hmm. as opposed to a shorter period of time? It doesn't seem to make a difference. Okay, good. Frozen. So I think yes. that's really reassuring for our patients. So Great get your news. eggs frozen when you're in your 20s yes. and you can use them when you're 40. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I'm, I think I really um, am very aware of this too because a lot of times people will ask me, did, did I freeze my eggs? And here's the thing. It wasn't even offered when I was young enough to freeze my eggs. So it was considered experimental back then. <laughs> Um, And so it's really just more in recent years that egg freezing has become an option for women, and I'm so glad that it is an option now. Yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. It's important because it allows women to really do other things with their life and not feel that pressure necessarily Mm -hmm. of having to move forward with family building. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're transitioning to our next session, which is our Q&A question. So, you know, I'm on all the social media boards and everything, and so, um, you know, on these boards, I sometimes I feel really bad for these patients because they've got really good questions and it makes me sad because I feel like why don't they get to talk to their doctor about that I feel like you and I are just so good if a patient sends us a message on the patient portal or email or whatever we get back to them right away and it makes me sad that sometimes patients are having to ask on you know a Facebook group or something like that because they feel like they don't have good access to their doctors Um, yeah I mean I can understand too though sometimes patients (laughs) They find value in other people's experiences yeah. and, you know, just want to see what other people's opinions are. I certainly get that. But yeah, sure. Yeah. Your, yeah. your doctor's you know, opinion is important, too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to go through a couple questions here. So here is a patient. She says, I'm 40 years old. She's done two IUIs and it's not working. So what should she do next? <laughs> So I think if she was my patient, there's a couple mm-hmm. things. First, I think you need to review the insemination cycles, the mm-hmm. IUI cycles. What were these cycles that I did? Mm-hmm. Were these cycles that another doctor did? And we can kind of investigate the protocol. What type of medication was she taking? Was she mm-hmm. taking an oral medication? Was she taking an injectable medication? What was really done? Mm-hmm. What testing has been done? You know, 
40-year-old woman. I'm assuming she probably is on, you know, the lower end of the curve for mm-hmm. ovarian reserve. Usually as women age, everyone knows this, I think, by now. But, you know, we women were born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. And so usually as you get into your 40s, you're dealing with a little bit limited number of egg supply, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so time is really of the essence, right? So time to pregnancy is probably the number one motivator, I think, for most patients. They want to be pregnant yesterday by the time mm-hmm. they saw us. And it's tough to go through two rounds of IUIs and not be successful. Mm -hmm. And so I always talk to them about what are their goals? Mm -hmm. You know, are you, how are you feeling about things? You know, are you thinking we didn't give IUI a good try, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think two is sort of a tough number for me. Mm -hmm. Usually when I counsel my patients from the beginning, Mm -hmm. I may say to them, we have this option, IUIs, or we have this option, IVF. Mm -hmm. And these are both available to you. And we talk about the pros and cons of each. But I do say to them, listen, if you want to try IUIs, Mm -hmm. I think we need to commit to doing, and it depends on their age, but for my older patients, I say at least three months. Mm -hmm. For my younger patients, I'll give them six months, okay? But it's hard to say we did two IUIs and now this wasn't mm-hmm. a successful treatment. I think if you're going to do a treatment option, you need to commit to doing it. And mm-hmm. I say, give it the good college try, right? <laughs> give, give it yeah. a good shot. Yeah. Give it three months. Okay. But sometimes patients are, they get through the process, they do the yeah. two IUIs and they're like, absolutely not. Yeah. I'm ready to move on to yeah. a, you know, more effective treatment, even mm-hmm. though it's a more involved process, I'm yeah. open to IVF. And yeah. certainly this is a patient that I'm pretty yeah. sure she was probably offered IVF from the beginning. Yeah. I think most fertility doctors would, yeah. um, depending on what her ovarian reserve is, but a 40-year-old usually from the beginning is yeah. offered IVF. So you kind of yeah. have to gauge how the patient's feeling. Yeah. Well, I like too that you really thought through that. It wasn't just some automatic answer for everybody. I just feel like so many doctors like in their minds, like, oh, you have to have tried this number and then we do this. But you're like, no, let's study your past cycles and see how they went and can we make improvement to me it's totally different if somebody for example has had two perfect looking cycles Mm -hmm. and didn't get pregnant then that's making me wonder what else is going on is it something on a microscopic level that we need to address with IVF versus let's say somebody had two cycles and they didn't go well but it's something we think we can fix Mm -hmm. like let's say the lining was too thin and I'm like you know what let's try again but I can give you estrogen to help your lining be thicker next time so I think really just trying to look and see what are the things that we can adjust to try to get improvement or if it was already perfect cycles then hey maybe it is time to move on so I think it's nice to keep Mm -hmm. it flexible and just customize according to the patient definitely I think one thing that you and I feel very similarly about Mm -hmm. is really optimizing IUI cycles Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that is often just lacking Mm -hmm. in in REI's training a lot of times we get heavily trained on IVF and not so much Mm -hmm. training on how to really just perform the art of an IUI cycle and it's all about timing. Like yeah. I always tell my patients, listen, yeah. it's all about waiting. We cannot rush mm-hmm. an IUI cycle. And mm-hmm. I often see when I review cycles, this was a rush cycle. Yeah. You know, because we are like we're actors. You yeah. Know, we want to act on everything. We're tightly managing. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes things are rushed a little bit. And so mm-hmm. I always kind of like coach my patients. All right, we have to be patient. We're going to make sure this follicle gets big enough. We're going to get the lining plenty of time to develop before we do that trigger injection. And it makes a difference. Studies show it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I do think a lot of physicians even discount IUI cycles. I know that at some fertility clinics, 
doctors don't even do them at all. They have them done by other providers Mm -hmm. um, or even nurses or things like that. And I always worry about that because I'm like, look, if you're not in there yourself and getting to see on the ultrasound, or if you're not the one performing the IUI, sometimes you're not, you might be missing some of the things that are very important to it. So I love how you and I do all of our own ultrasounds. We do all of our own inseminations. They're always done by a physician. I mean, we may do them for each other, but they're always done by physicians and, and not anyone else or not by anybody else. And I, and I think that's helpful. And I know, I know you said you had a couple of pregnancies this week or any of them from IUIs. I had a couple this week from IUIs too. So, I mean, that's the thing when we see these pregnancies come from them, we're like, God, that's really sad that some people are missing out on that opportunity to do this type of treatment as well. So definitely. And I mean, like you said, it's information gathering. Yeah. You know, we gain a lot of information. It's frustrating to even go through an IUI cycle and let's Mm -hmm. say it's not successful, but that doesn't mean we didn't learn something. Mm -hmm. I use IUI cycles all the time. I look at them for lining development. And when you take someone through IVF and you're watching their lining, you're like, man, your lining is just not developing as I expected. Let me look back and see how you did in your IUI cycle. And often they did really well. So you can tailor experiences later to, you know, what information you've gained from a prior cycle. Such a good point. Because sometimes if people have tried, they feel like, oh, that was all for nothing. And that's such a good point. It wasn't for nothing. We learned so much about your body and how it works and how you grow eggs and all the rest of it. It helps us dose our medication sometimes for IVF and everything too. If we know, hey, are you really sensitive to medication or are you more resistant? We need to give you a higher dose. So that's such a good point. I think it's really helpful even if you don't get pregnant from it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, a patient has tried a couple of FETs, frozen embryo transfers, and they haven't worked, so she wants to know, what about adding Lovenox? How do you feel about that? <laughs> All right, this is definitely a hot topic, mm-hmm. and I will say this comes up a lot, mm-hmm. and I would not even you know, say just Lovenox, but mm-hmm. I would lump it into like all different sorts of add-ons mm-hmm. for um, frozen embryo transfer cycles, but let me touch on Lovenox mm-hmm. a little bit. And so, first of all, if someone has had, you said she had two prior, mm-hmm. okay. So the idea behind adding Lovenox to a cycle, we can kind of talk about where that came from, mm-hmm. is it really stems from recurrent pregnancy loss and the testing that goes along with that and really looking for certain mm-hmm. conditions that put you at risk of having a pregnancy loss multiple times in a row, okay? And so then now we've extrapolated a lot of that thought mm-hmm. into IVF and recurrent implantation failure. I would say this patient really doesn't fall into that category. Right. She's had two failed transfers. I really say someone that goes through three failed embryo transfers is really much more at that in that category of patients. Mm-hmm. But you're trying to do anything and everything, right? So I understand where this comes from to be successful in the next one. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people will try and add in medications. And where Lovenox comes from is when people would do recurrent pregnancy loss testing for something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, that's the treatment for it if you do test positive for it. So really it's not something that should be used unless you have gone through all of the testing, which is very specific testing, and there's a clinical component that goes in to say, yes, you have this condition, and this is the medication that you need to be on when you're trying to conceive and during pregnancy. But to take that data Mm -hmm. and then put it into our patients who are going through IVF and struggling to have an embryo implant, Mm -hmm. I would say it's really an incorrect application of Mm -hmm. that information. And I have a patient that I love, 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 and she had this happen to her. Mm -hmm. It wasn't with IVF, but she had had, you know, recurrent losses. And I think the use of Lovenox in an improper setting Mm -hmm. can be dangerous. Yeah. And here's why. 
it's an anticoagulant. Mm -hmm. You can bleed. You're at risk of bleeding. Mm -hmm. Bleeding in the first trimester of pregnancy is very common. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you may just have light spotting, but when you're on Lovenox, you can really bleed. Mm -hmm. So I did have a patient who was put on Lovenox. She did not have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or really any indication Mm -hmm. for Lovenox, and she hemorrhaged. She bled very, very heavily Mm -hmm. in the first trimester. So anything that I'm trying to do for my patient put them on a medication, I want to make sure that there's a true indication. Yes. It's not without risk. Right. And, right. You know, so I want to make sure everything is indicated. Yeah. That we put yeah. our patients on. Absolutely. Well, um, it's interesting because, um, you guys will see over time, Dr. K and I, we practice a little bit differently. I feel like you're probably the more the strict one and I'm more the lax one. I'm kind of like more, I think I'm open to trying things, but you and I feel the same way about this one. Cause really when I'm deciding if we should try something that's a little bit outside the box, I'm always asking myself, could this cause any harm? And there are some of the little treatment add-ons where I'm like, okay, you know, sure, you want to try this or that. I don't think it's going to cause any problems. It's not going to cause any harm. Will it help? I'm not sure we can try it. But with this one, I totally agree. It could cause harm. And even if you had no first trimester bleeding, what if you tripped and bumped your head or got into a car accident or something? The fact that you're on Lovenox, a blood thinner, you could bleed out. That could be very dangerous for you. And so I do take this very seriously. And again, like you were saying, sometimes we do give it because we have patients with a true indication. They have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or maybe they've had a blood clot, you know, in their legs or their lungs or something. They need to be on it. Um, and that is a hundred percent reasonable, um, in that case, but that's because we're balancing the risks and the benefits of, of being on it. So I think we agree on this one. Okay. Well, you've been asking me a lot of questions, but this is a funny one. And I had someone um, message me about this, but I've seen a lot of doctors do Benadryl as an add-in. Yes. And patients hate it, right? Yeah. Because you're just like sleepy, tired all the yes. time. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking about it because, yeah. you know, you do try and do something differently. Yeah. So what's your opinion on yes. Benadryl? <laughs> yes. So this is part of, and this has been very trendy lately, yeah. um, the antihistamine yeah. protocol. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I've been doing mm-hmm. it. But you know what? Instead of Benadryl, I've been doing Claritin or Zyrtec. Okay, good. So they're uh-huh. not sleepy all day. Then they're not oh. sleepy all day. Yes, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's part of the antihistamine protocol. But, yes, Benadryl. And I will say, too, even outside of fertility, um, purposes. I've been a little bit worried about Benadryl lately anyways, because they're saying long-term chronic use can increase risk for dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as we're kind of finding out about these things over time, you know, once again, you take something we thought was a totally benign medication and realize "Mm, maybe Mm -hmm. there are some risks to it too. But, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I've been sticking to to Claritin and people who want to try it. not sure if it's helpful, but I don't, I don't think it hurts. I'm remembering something back from my Mm -hmm. med school days about the first generation and a histamine versus the Mm -hmm. second generation, right? So Benadryl crosses the blood brain barrier and uh-huh. I think Claritin so yes. don't right. so you can mm-hmm. probably see how that risk maybe isn't as Sure. Claritin and yeah. Subject, so yeah. That's good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Well, that's all I have for you. This was the end of our first episode. I had fun. Did it you was, have fun? Oh my gosh. It was so much fun. Oh my gosh. Fun. I yeah. could talk to you all day. <laughs> um, and so for our audience, you'll have to let us know did you like our podcast? And do you want to see more? And what kind of topics? Yes. Topics. Or you can send us um, celebrity or reality clips and we can um, really look at those for you and give you our advice from that. Um, tell, give us some you know q and a's and all of that to go over together and we'll see you next week right. bye, bye.